0: I hope you have a Bible with you. Uh, We'll be in the book of Genesis this morning. Some of you might think, uh, wait, are we in January? Aren't we going to go to Matthew or Luke and talk about the birth of Christ? Well, we need to go to Genesis first, and we'll be in Genesis chapter 3 this morning. And one of the things that, uh, for those of you who like stories uh, or like to read stories or books, uh, it may be confusing to start in the middle of a book Or to just randomly pick a page and start reading and you're wondering what's going on. And then there's some of you who like to go to the very last page and see, is this book worth reading? And you don't know anything about it other than they win in the end or something. You're like, okay, I'll read this. But sometimes it can be quite strange when you pick up in the midst of a story. And one of the things that we run into every year at Christmas is looking at something in the storyline of the Bible. And when I say the storyline, I don't mean some made-up fairy tale, the account of God's Word. And uh, at Christmas, we end up at almost this center point. And it's important that instead of just looking at the child of the manger, to be reminded that Christmas does not begin with an angel and Mary. It doesn't begin with a journey to Bethlehem uh, to find a place so that the baby would be born there. That Advent season, that the celebration of the coming of Christ uh, does not begin with three wise men who saw a star and started off on this journey to go find the King of the Jews. We actually have to go back way before that, at the beginning, if you would say, of the storyline, that we would go way back to the Garden uh, because if we don't go to the garden, um, we can miss the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ when we look to the manger at Christmas time. Even as it was read a few minutes ago from Isaiah chapter 9. 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, the name that Isaiah declared of of the child to be born, wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, everlasting father, that that's not early enough in the storyline that we need to go back. And so we must go back to the garden. We must go back to creation. We must go back to Adam and Eve. And we have to go back to a very dark, horrible, tragic moment In the history of mankind, if we're going to find any rejoicing in the manger today. Look with me at Genesis chapter 3. As we look at this, this morning, the scriptural truth is that Satan, sin, and death will be destroyed by the work of the promised Savior. I'm going to read verses 1 through 15, and this morning we will draw our attention to verse 15, but I want to read the first 14 verses before that so that you can have the context. This is after creation, after God spoke uh, the world and the universe into existence, after he created Adam and gave him life, after he took a rib from Adam's side and created Eve, you come to this point in chapter 3, verse 1. who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, to the, ser- said the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field, On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The Word of God. This week, read Genesis chapters 1 and 2. A perfect world... A perfect universe. A perfect creation. At the end of every literal 24-hour day of creation, God said it is good. And after the sixth day, after he created man, and he looked at all of creation, before he rested, he said it's very good. A place where you see Adam and Eve in a relationship with God, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. There's no sin there's no darkness, there is no death, there is no trouble, there is no fear. I mean, think for a moment just on that. What a glorious time and place to be, to long for that. And yet we come to chapter 3 in which there's trouble, Adam and Eve, who are made in the image of God, they fall and they sin. God gave them one command. He said, you could have all of this, but this one tree in the middle of the garden, do not eat it. And you think, man, I could have done that. Lord, why didn't you put me there instead of Adam or Eve? And yet every one of us would probably do exactly the same. Actually, I know that we would do that. And he said, do not eat of this. And what you see in chapter 3 is a very dark moment in which there is this fall that affects all creation and all mankind. From that moment, all of creation was marred. Instead of the light of God, you have this darkness in the world because the fellowship with God is broken And it's now dreadful. And as Adam and Eve hiding from God, it is now a frightful thing to be around God. And from that moment of chapter 3 and that sin, sin was passed down through Adam to every single person in history, including you and I today. And if you want to turn to Genesis chapter 6, we can see a description of the greatness of this fall of mankind, to go from this perfect creation, this wonderful place in fellowship with God, and then listen to Genesis chapter 6, verses, um, uh, beginning in verse 1. I'm sorry, in verse 5. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, what? Continually And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land man and animals and creeping things and birds and the heavens for I am sorry that I have made them. And if you continue to read you'll know that in that part of the storyline that God sends a global flood and he kills and wipes out every single man, woman and child except for Noah and his wife and their three sons and their three wives. And you read in that chapter and in those chapters that follow that as that flood came, the animals of the earth were destroyed, except for the animals that were there safe in the ark. The ark pointing to this point of grace, pointing to the cross of Jesus Christ. But yet, I read that to you so that you would see how dark and how sinful a perfect creation became after what happened in the garden. Now let us go back for a moment and look at chapter 3. Know this, that as the serpent who enters on into the scene, from Scripture we know that before Adam and Eve sinned, sin existed. Now, we don't know this exact timeline, but we know before Satan comes, he comes tempting them to sin against God Almighty and questions, did God really say these things? Surely you will not die. And on and on that they would question the Lord God Almighty. The serpent who tempted them was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. If you turn to Revelation chapter 12, we have a description of this serpent that was in the garden. The serpent in the garden is also the the one that we read of in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, the great dragon. And it says this in Revelation 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil, and what? Satan the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. This is a picture after Satan and a third of the angels rose up against God that God cast them out of heaven down to the earth. And so God had already created the heavens and the earth and you have Satan who comes on the scene when Adam and Eve are walking in the garden and he comes tempting them that they would disobey God and they would no longer trust him or love him. But they would no longer serve him, but they would disobey and believe a lie. The serpent in the garden is Satan. And that helps us when we read this curse. It's not against an, it's some animal, but it's against Satan himself. It's, and we, we, as we read there in Revelation 12, we come to the end, and we know from Revelation 12, the end of the story, if you would say, or the storyline, and what happens to Satan in the end. But now look back at at Genesis chapter 3. Look at verse 15 where we land at here today. It says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. As they were there at that tree and Satan tempted them, And Eve has this conversation back and forth. The word of God is twisted. She takes the fruit and gives it to Adam who is with her, who knew what the command by God was, who should have grabbed that serpent by the head and cut its head off and thrown it out of the garden. But he did not, and he joined in with the sin. And that's why when you read Scripture, that the sin comes through Adam down to all of us. And it's key for understanding this promise of hope. You wonder maybe why we lit one candle, we'll light one a week, because during Advent there's this theme each week of hope and joy and peace and love. And today it's on this focus of hope that we have a promised hope in the Redeemer, the Savior, Christ, who would be born, who would save his people from their sins. And here we see that from that moment of the fall, God, before he deals with Adam and Eve, he first turns to the serpent. He turns to Satan. And in verse 14 and 15, you see a curse upon the serpent, upon Satan, as we read from Revelation chapter 12. And what God declares is that there will be conflict from now at that point on, when it says there would be enmity. It means that there would be hatred between Eve's offspring and the offspring of Satan. And you say, well, what is this and who are this offspring? And it's important that you would know that there are two offsprings that are mentioned here. The offspring of Eve are the children of God's promise, God's people, those who have faith in Christ alone for salvation, they will have conflict all of the days of their earthly life against Satan and, and the demons and his children, if you would say that from Scripture. Those who by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone are saved are those of the children of promise, God's word, the offspring of Eve as is mentioned here. And God says there will be conflict. Hatred, enmity between the offspring. And so we must then ask, who are the children of Satan? Who are the offspring of the serpent? Well, a few scriptures that help us understand. This is 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of who? Of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of who? the devil. So as we celebrate the advent, the first coming of Christ, we see that Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. And as we just read in Revelation chapter 12, there's a day that Satan and the demons, they will be put down in hell, the lake of fire for eternity, to never come against God's people again. We should say praise the Lord for that. For all who are followers of Christ. In John chapter 8, verse 44, as Jesus dealt with the religious leaders, as he spoke to the Pharisees, and he called them, You brood of vipers. And you go, Wait a minute. These are supposed to be leading the people of God to worship the Lord. They taught the law, and he called them a brood of vipers. But look at what it says here in John chapter 8, verse 44 You are of your father, the who? What's it say? the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a what? A liar and the father of what? Lies. So you go back to the garden. You see these things in scripture and you go, this is why the serpent is there. This is what the serpent is doing. He's lying, he's tempting, he's twisting the truth. And all the scripture tells us that Satan and the demons are constantly doing this. And not only Satan and the demons... But all who do not have faith in Jesus Christ alone are children of Satan. And they will endure the wrath of God in hell for all eternity. They are the children of Satan following after what he desires. And it is no wonder that Christians face persecution in this world. It's no wonder that Christians lose their life in this world because of the children of Satan and Satan and the demons who come against the people of God. And so since the curse in the garden, there has been conflict throughout the Old Testament, through the New Testament, to today, until the day when Christ returns and puts the enemy down for eternity. For a few examples of this, you can read this throughout Scripture, a few references. I don't know if I even put these up there or not, but First Chronicles 21, verse 1, it says that Satan stood against Israel... God's people, and he incited King David to number Israel. You have a picture of Satan doing this work. In Job chapter 1 and 2, you have Satan presenting himself to God. And God says, look at Job. He's someone who fears me. He's upright and blameless. And Satan says, well, if you take away all of his wealth, everything he has, he will curse you. He says, have at it, Satan. But you can't go after his life. And Job lost everything and all of his children in the same day. And yet he fell down and worshiped God. Satan comes back another day. And God says, hey, do you look at Job? He goes, yeah, but if you would take his health away, then, you know, he will curse you. He's okay. You cannot kill him. And Satan had the power given to him to afflict Job with sores from head to toe. And yet Job did not turn from worshiping the Lord God Almighty. But it is a important picture that you would see that Satan is your enemy. Peter says that Satan roars like, like a prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And so you have trouble in this world, you have persecution in this world, you have problems in this world. One, it's because of sin. And number two, if you're a follower of Christ, it's because Satan and the demons and those who are not children of God are after you. And they hate you because you love Jesus. And you might think, oh, but those people aren't that bad. I know they don't believe in Jesus, but when you read scripture the description of all who are far off from the lord and that includes you before jesus christ saved you are enemies of god and enemies of god's people and so it should be no wonder when you see people hating you doing horrible things to you and they don't love the lord god almighty you should not be amazed by it because scripture said it would happen from the beginning and it's the theme that goes throughout And that's why we long for the day of the return of Christ. Even as we celebrate the birth of Christ this month, we long for that day that Christ will come in his glory and there will be no more stain of sin for the people of God, a glorified body rejoined with a perfect holy soul. Glory to God. Praise him and with him for eternity. In Revelation 12, just a few verses after we read verse 9, it calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. So Satan is constantly attacking you if you are a follower of Christ. Ephesians chapter 6, though, is a great hope and encouragement for all the believers that God grants you and gives you ways to stand in the midst of that enmity and that hatred. We have that description in chapter 6 that we're in a spiritual battle and God gives us armor to put on and a weapon to pick up. It says in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 11 through 12, it says put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of who? Who? Satan, the devil. The devil. It says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So as you are being attacked by Satan, by the demons, remember, Satan can only be in one place at one time. Same thing with the angels. He's not omnipresent. He's not all-knowing. So you have the enemy that will attack you. The people that are not of Christ will come after you Know that God has given you armor to put on. He's given you the shield of faith. He's given you the helmet of salvation. He's given you a weapon, the Word of God, to wield. So that by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, you don't have to do this on your own power because you can't. And only by the power of the Holy Spirit putting on the armor of God can we stand. But yet sometimes if you're like me, there are mornings that I don't want to get up and put on the armor at all. I just want to stay in bed because there's trouble in this world. You ever felt like that before? You ever got through your day and you're wondering like, why did this day become a disaster? Why is everyone after me? Why is there so much coming against me? It's like, ah, I didn't put on the armor. And again, We think, I can do this. I can do this. And that's when we fail. Holy Spirit, would you put that armor on me? Holy Spirit, put the sword in my hand. Do that work because I have no energy or strength or power on my own to do it. And it's a glorious picture of God sanctifying his people and protecting his people from Satan and our enemies. Look back here at verse, thir- uh, verse 15 of chapter 3. The second point is this, is that a promised Savior brought hope and expectation. In chapter 3, verse 15, not only do we have a curse in verse 14 and 15 about what God has cursed Satan and says there are going to be conflict throughout this time on the earth, he says, between your offspring and her offspring. And we just established who are those people, the people of God and the people of of Satan, But what happens here in verse 15, if you don't pick up on that, in the midst of this dark, dark moment, God gives hope and expectancy for the people of God, for all of Eve's offspring, the children of God. He has just granted hope, a promise that there should be great hope and expectation in God's people is that God will do something. And what He will do is bring about a victorious offspring that would come and would wipe out the enemy. Most of us enjoy or like stories or movies where the enemy is destroyed. And we love to get to the, the end of the movie and the bad people are put down. They're locked away in jail. They're destroyed, whatever it may be. And we just love that part. We love the heroes. And here it is, this picture that God's saying there is a day that the enemy will be ended. They will be put down and that will come through the offspring of Eve to come. Some descriptions of that child, that offspring to come. One of them is in Luke chapter 1, verse 32 and 33. It says this of the child that would be born. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And you know this text. You know this because of the Christmas time. You read through chapter 1 and 2 of Luke and you read Matthew chapter 1 during this month and you reflect on these things. This is the description of the victor to come. This is the description of the hero, the offspring, the redeemer, the rescuer, the savior. I mean, have you ever been at a point in your life where you're like, if someone doesn't save me right now, this is it. Have you ever felt at that point where it's like, if someone doesn't intervene, there is nothing that I have to look forward to today. This is the picture of the darkness of mankind and the sinfulness, and yet God would bring this victorious offspring to save His people from their sins. It was read earlier as in, the, in, in the middle of our service here, the beginning in Isaiah chapter 9, it says, verse 2, the people... Who will walked in darkness, have seen a great what? A great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them them has light shone. Pointing to Jesus Christ, the light of the world, the victor, the rescuer, the savior who had come. And therefore in the midst of the darkness of mankind and the sinfulness of mankind, this light, Jesus Christ, shines and brings hope. The promised hope which God gave back in the garden. And therefore, this birth of Christ is no ordinary birth. As we sing songs this month, as we read about the virgin birth, the birth is miraculous. It's a work of God and it is glorious. And the reason it's miraculous and glorious is the offspring had to come through Eve Not through Adam, because the sin passed down from Adam. And therefore, we can understand when the angel tells Mary that you will be with child. And she says, how is that? I'm a virgin. And he says, it will be because of the Holy Spirit and the work there to make a miraculous birth come to being. And we rejoice in that. We look at the manger. We think of these things. We sing these songs. Some of you have music playing 24 hours a day during this time of year. And you hear these truths sung over and over. I'm always amazed when you go into stores that have no regard for God and yet they're singing, playing songs about Jesus Christ. It's just kind of crazy in this world to, to see that. But there is this light and this hope and an expectation. And so now think for a moment. From the garden to the point where Jesus Christ is born. You have approximately 4,000 years that go by. And you say, wait, 4,000 years? Think for a moment. From the promise in the garden to even Abraham. Just a few more chapters in Genesis is 2,000 years. Imagine waiting 2,000 years for the promised a Savior to come. The people who died, hoping to see the Savior, but yet they never did. And then you have from Abraham to King David, another thousand years. And then from King David to the birth of Christ, another thousand years, approximately. Four thousand years. Generation after generation after generation, telling the children's children, children about the Savior to come. And yet they all died and never saw But yet they hoped in in God, in his promise. They had faith that God would fulfill what he did, just like we see with Abraham and throughout the the people that God shows us, the faith that they had in God. Imagine you waiting 4,000 years for God to fulfill his word. There just may be a temptation to not trust him. There just may be a temptation to go, I don't know if this is going to happen or not. It's been this many years. And you see throughout the Old Testament, and when you look at the nation of Israel, as they hoped in the promise back from the garden of this one to come, they endured the rebellion of God's people worshiping idols. As we've been studying on Sunday mornings about the minor prophets, of that they would go into captivity, that war would come against them, and over and over this cycle of turning against God and being given over to the enemy, and then God restoring them repeatedly for hundreds of years years for four thousand years and yet the people of God some of them continued to watch and to hope and to wait because God said it and we know when God says it from his word Hebrews tells us he always fulfills it so church if you're needing hope this morning the only thing I can tell you is to look to Jesus It's to look to the promises of God's word because some of you have been walking with Christ for a while. That he saved you years ago. And you're like, I've been waiting 50 years. 60 years for you to return Christ. Think about over 2,000 years. Of Christians. After the empty tomb. That's felt and said the same thing. And so we still wait. And we hope. In the promises of Christ. In which he says, I am coming again. And he will return in glory. And whether you see him before you physically die and go to be with Christ, um, we still hope and we still trust because God has promised and what he promises, he always fulfills. Look at the third point here. This promised savior that brings hope and expectation also brings a cost. The cost of a promised uh, savior was very great. Look at back at chapter 3 verse 15. He says you, speaking to the serpent, Satan, shall bruise or crush his heel. Who's the his heel? Who's he talking about? Who's the his there? Jesus, the offspring to come. And he says you, the serpent, will be the one to bruise his heel. The promise of salvation for God's people was costly. It was great, a great, great cost because the requirement for redeeming God's people from their sin and saving them is blood. It's shed blood. The death of Jesus Christ. If you go back to the garden, Eve takes the fruit. She eats it. She hands it to Adam. He eats it. They hide from God. God comes into their, where they're at. He's like, where are you? And he's like, oh, we're over here. We're, we're hiding. And he says, what did you, did you do what I told you not to do? And he's like, quickly, he's like, well, that woman you gave me, she, she did it. And she's like, he's like, what happened? And she's like, well, it, the devil made me do it. So, again, we follow that. We blame God because ultimately Adam was blaming God. You gave me that woman, God. And she's like, hey, it was Satan who uh, did that there. Take note that God did not destroy them in that moment. God's holy and just. He creates them. They disobey. His justice, his holiness requires justice. He doesn't turn to them and curse them first. He doesn't wipe them out. He doesn't cast them into hell, which was created for Satan and, and the demons. He shows grace. He gives them mercy. And what he does, he gives them hope. But that redemption, that hope and redemption would cost the Lord much. The heel of the Savior will be bruised. You see, God's promised Redeemer, who is his Son, Jesus Christ, would have to shed his blood and die. Look at Genesis 3, verse 21. Just a few verses farther from where we're at. After he curses uh, Adam and Eve, it says, verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The word skins there literally means animal hides. How did they get those? The Lord slaughtered animals. You go, wow. Blood was shed to give them grace and mercy to cover them. And then you go a a chapter later. You have Cain and Abel. Adam and Eve now have been cast out of the garden at this point. Again, God's shown them grace. And they have Cain and Abel. And Cain and Abel both bring an offering to the Lord. And in it, You have Abel's offering, a firstborn of the flock, slaughtered, blood was accepted by God. Cain brings in the fruit of the field. God doesn't accept it. God even tells him, hey, do better in a sense, do what's right. And Cain in his jealousy raises up and murders his brother. But you see this theme of blood that began continues to go throughout the word of God to the birth of Christ, to the death of Christ, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 helps us see this from the beginning throughout Scripture. And it says this in Hebrews 9, uh, 22. It says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And so if you go back and read in the Old Testament law, all the requirements of blood and all the sacrifices, but it says here, And without the shedding of blood, there is no what? There's no forgiveness of sins. And so the nation of Israel constantly brought the animal offerings, the sacrifices, and the temple flowed with blood and the priests would sprinkle the blood and there was always the blood so that there would be this passing over or a temporary forgiveness of God's people of their sins. Yet the cost would be great for the Redeemer to come, the one born in the manger because he would have to shed his blood and he would die so that the forgiveness of sins for God's people could be made available and so you have that horrific moment of the cross where Jesus not only physically went through things that we can't even imagine where he did shed his blood where he did breathe his last and die But also he took upon your sins, if you are a child of God. And he received the full cup of wrath from God the Father. And he bore that because of his grace upon you, his love for his children, his mercy and forgiveness. The fulfillment of that promise back in the garden. And if you look back in chapter 3 again, verse 15, following the cost that would be paid, the fourth point is this, the promised Savior will destroy the serpent. The promised Savior will destroy the serpent. Here it is again, look at the text. He, Jesus, shall bruise your head and you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. Did you notice the location of the wounds? Look at that there, the location of the wounds. He, Jesus, shall bruise your head, speaking of Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. You think, well, what does that mean? Why on the heel? Well, you may be walking along some way, and you may come across a snake that's ready to bite you, and all you do at that moment is literally step on its head to crush it. But as you do that, the snake bites you. This is this picture of this um, curse and this promise to come. But the thing to take note here is the crushing there in verse 15 of the head of the serpent is lethal, it's deadly, and it's final. And the wound on Jesus, his heel, is temporary the offspring of the woman, the promised one to come to be born in that manger would have victory over that serpent, over Satan and it would involve suffering. That's that picture when you see the bruising of his heel. It's the picturing of the suffering servant. When you read in Isaiah the descriptions of what Christ would go through and what he would give for his life, that is the picture of what happens when the serpent bites the Redeemer on the heel. And so he would suffer, he would bleed, and he would die. And he would be taken off that cross, and he would be wrapped in cloth, spices anointed, and he would be placed in the tomb. And you think, if you were in that moment, wait, this is the promised Redeemer. He just died. That there was no understanding of what Jesus was doing at that moment on the cross. It wasn't until later that the disciples who believed in him understood as God opened their eyes to them. So church, you must understand when you look at the cross and you see the tomb. You have this dark moment. But don't forget Genesis 3.15 that the bruising of the heel could not keep Christ in the tomb. That on the third morning... After the death of Christ, God raised Jesus, His Son, from death to life so that we can sing, up from the grave He arose. With a mighty triumph o'er His foes, He arose a victor from the dark domain and He lives forever with His saints to reign. He arose, He arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. That's the hope of the promise. In Genesis 3.15, the birth of Christ in the manger to come. You can call it the story, the account from the beginning of the Word of God to the end. It is all to God's glory and His masterful, glorious plan to save and redeem His people. Church, that's why in this Advent Christmas season, we sing what we sing and we celebrate. And as I said earlier, I pray that you don't get distracted. Not just during Christmas, but throughout the year. Because I know that everyone has Christmas traditions and things we do, things we go to. And you see all the stuff around. But none of those things that the world has created has anything to do with redemption from sin. So maybe the thing that we should pray for is that during this time, more than anything, that our hearts would be filled with hope of Christ and that we would praise him more than we did yesterday. And it would, it would grow greater and greater until the day that we see him You know, Genesis chapter 3.15, they call it the proto-evangelium, the first declaration of the gospel. Many of us think, well, that's in the New Testament. No, it's all the way back in the garden at the fall, at the darkest moment is the first gospel declaration that Jesus Christ would come and save his people from their sins. And as the people of God waited for his birth and for his redemption, we who are in Christ, wait for his return. And as I look at these last few verses, I just want to read you these four verses here. <clears throat> here are some things that I would encourage you to reflect on in this. Jesus said this in John 16, 33, to the followers, his followers, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. First John chapter five, verses four through five. It says, "For everyone who has been born of, God, born of God, overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so if you're here without hope this morning, it's because you don't have Jesus. and if you don't have hope in Jesus Christ, all you have to look forward is breathing your last and dying to try to live out whatever joy and fun and happiness you want to do the rest of the days of your life. And so you've heard the gospel declared to you this morning. Jesus Christ crucified for the sins of his people, risen again. He's ruling and reigning and he will return. And all I can say to you, if you are here without Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you have had no faith in him to this morning. God is working upon your heart. Call out to him and say, save me, Lord. I can't tell you anything else. And he is faithful. Revelation chapter 20 verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. We rejoice in that. And at the same time, it's a sobering scripture because we know that all who are far off from Christ will also be cast in that place where the wrath of God, the eternal conscious torment will be upon those people for eternity. And so if we are in Christ, I pray that you give thanks this morning, that you rejoice in the Lord. And as the worship team comes up and we sing the praises of the Lord as we take communion together this morning, Luke chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, should have a greater understanding to you this Advent season in which it says this, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your plan to save us from our sins. We thank you for your word, which gives us the entire picture of what you have done and what you are doing to save us. Father, I pray that this advent season is just not another year of Christmas on the calendar with activities, but it would be a time of encouraging and strengthening and building our faith in you with praise and joy and hope as we await your return. Father, as we take a cup and as we take bread together. Uh, May you be glorified in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen.